lost a lot of things over the last year. We lost the ability to spend time with family, to travel, to give and receive hugs, uh, to share meals with friends, to interact in person with co-workers. I mean, there have just been so many different things that have been taken from us over the last year. And I think you don't really realize what you have until it's gone in some cases. But to me, the worst part of all of that and watching uh, the impact of just where people have been over the last year has been that in, in so many cases, it seems like there's an absence of hope. And when you lose hope, you're in trouble. I do think it's going to be a while before we fully appreciate the impact of all that has taken place as we've gone through a global pandemic and are now coming out of that and uh, headed in a really good direction. And, and maybe you have noticed the same thing I have, that people are, there, there's, there just seems to be a, a greater air of uh, optimism and excitement about where things are going. And, you know, specifically we see COVID numbers low and, and those kinds of things. And, and that's all encouraging. And that helps us. And it does provide some sense of hope. But here's something I want us to consider is this, and I'm, this isn't to be a, a downer and a pessimist on this, but you know, what if? What if there is some other type of wave? What if something like what's happening in India and other places in the world, what if something like that were to happen again? It's a reminder to me that we cannot put our hope in something that is unpredictable. Right? As, as nice as it is to be able to say, okay, our, our circumstances are changing in a very positive direction, that's something for us to be encouraged and excited about. Ultimately, our hope is not in anything that is in change that, that ever changes, um, because if if we lose hope, we're in trouble. Proverbs thirteen twelve says, "Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life." There is a sickness of heart that comes when we lose hope, and we need to put our hope in the one thing that is unchanging. Hebrews thirteen eight. And it reminds us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is who he is. He never changes. And one of the reasons that we can have such great hope as we'll see today is because we have a hope in the resurrection. We have hope that the story isn't over, that, that this isn't the end, and, and uh, that there is an unchanging, victorious God that we worship. Amen. Sam Alberry is a, uh, a pastor, a writer, um, he is a speaker, he was writing about this, and I thought it was interesting what he had to say, and I thought he kind of hit the nail on the head, he said, Christians believe in the resurrection and celebrate it every Easter, and then, and I quote, effectively stick it back in a drawer for the rest of the year, because they're at a loss to know what to do with it. Isn't that interesting? Easter is the time that, you know, Jesus is alive, Jesus rose from the dead, and, you know, we sing about it, and it's incorporated into worship songs like the ones that we sang this morning. But how often do we really uh, think about the importance of the resurrection when it comes to everyday life for us as living out our faith in Christ? This is not some extra, you know, kind of extraneous type of a belief when it comes to what we believe as, as Christians. This is at the core of what we believe. This is a central foundational belief. And I want us to jump into our, or continue into um, 1 Corinthians 
chapter 15. So we're in the middle of a series called We Don't Talk About That. Sometimes it are, these are things that we're not comfortable talking about, but as in a case like today, and then we'll get part two next week, we don't talk about it in the sense that we literally just don't spend as much time as we should talking about this. How often outside of Easter do we really dig into the significance and, and the importance of the resurrection? So let's start in verse 12. But if it, is, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. One of the things that, that we see in this passage um, about the resurrection and why it's so important is that our faith, is empty without the resurrection. In fact, it's translated here in the translation that I just read to you. It's, it says that, that our faith is, uh, is useless. But that word useless is a Greek word, kinos, which literally means empty. In fact, in, uh, in, in the parable in Luke chapter 20, Jesus uh, uh, told a parable of, a, of a, a, an owner who rented out a vineyard to some tenants and he would send people to collect the fruit from it. And it says that when, when he sent the, the people to collect what the tenants owed the owner, that they beat those people and sent them away empty-handed. You remember that story? Sent them away empty-handed. That word empty-handed is this same Greek word, kinos. It means to, literally, it means empty. So if you think about our faith in Christ, our faith is empty apart from the resurrection. I brought with me a little visual today. Now, just by show of hands, how many of you know what this is? A couple of you do, maybe, yeah. Um, if I were to go into our children's ministry area, when there are lots of kids around, and I would say, how many of you know what this is? More hands would go up in the air. Because... The children of our church, some of them anyway, know what this is. If you have kids and they don't know what it is, you need to introduce them to this because I have kids come into my office every single week because they want to come to take a look at this. Now, that's actually not really true. They really don't want to come take a look at this. They come to it because they know what's inside of this. Little suckers, right? Yeah, I, I, I know some of y'all know what this is, right? Because some of the kids come see me all the time. They're like in here multiple times a week, and it's awesome. I love that because I am totally not above bribery. So if I have to bribe children with candy to come see me, that's what I'll do. There's nothing at all weird about that these days, is there? But I do encourage our kids to come see me, and they know what this is. And you know what? I, I think it's kind of a cool-looking treasure box, and the, and the truth of the matter is, I would enjoy having it on my shelf, even if there were nothing inside it, because I could look at it and appreciate it. I'm like, that's, that's kind of cool. I think Sean found that for me somewhere. I'm not sure, but I, I like it. I think it looks neat. 
But I'm going to tell you right now that the kid flow coming into my office would shut down and dry up real quick if there were nothing inside. They don't come to look at the box. They come because of what's inside. You know what, guys? If we have a, a, a great faith and we can you know, talk all this wonderful stuff about you know, what we believe and all that, that might look pretty. It's kind of like a nice decorative box. But without the resurrection, it's empty inside. There's really nothing of, of substance there. The, the resurrection of Christ is what keeps our faith from being empty. That, that's literally what that, that term means. But it also has a figurative meaning um, throughout Scripture as well. Sometimes it's used in a literal sense, sometimes figuratively. But figuratively, what it means is without content, without basis, or without power. Now think about that one for a minute, especially the last one, without power. If we have a gospel message that is void of the resurrection, we have a message with no power. Because the real power in the message is the fact that, that Christ conquered death and sin. I mean, apart from the resurrection, we could still talk about a virgin birth. We could still talk about a, uh, a life lived where miracles were performed, where there were many who followed, where Jesus died in our place. He paid the price for our sins. All of those things could be true. But if the story ends there, then, you know, maybe we can make an argument that our sins have been paid for. I'm actually not totally sure about that, even scripturally, if that would be enough apart from the resurrection. But let's just say for the sake of argument that we could say, okay, our sins have been forgiven, but, but it ends there. There would be no power for us. There would be, there would be no uh, hope of eternal life. There would be no power for living. There would be, there would be nothing apart from the resurrection. I mean, think about this, that, that the Holy Spirit inside us is the one who empowers us to live as believers. And that is, that is the difference, by the way, if you haven't figured that out or tapped into that, to really live in, in the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us is what makes all the difference uh, as, as Christians. But Jesus said this in John 14, he was describing what would take place once the Holy Spirit indwelled us. And it says in, in verse 12, John 14, 12, it says, Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Isn't it interesting how Jesus ties the sending of the Holy Spirit, the empowering in our lives that will do greater things than these, all of that is tied to his Statement that because I'm going to the Father, because I will be resurrected from the dead, because I will return to the right hand of the Father, this is what's going to happen. And you continue on and, and you read uh, the rest of what he says and he, and he talks more about the coming of the Holy Spirit in the verses that follow. Um, but really interesting to think that had Jesus not been resurrected from the dead, then we would not have the coming of the Holy Spirit. We wouldn't have our power for living. This is, this is a huge part of the gospel message. And it's really interesting, if you read through the book of Acts, the emphasis in the gospel, preaching the gospel, is on the resurrection. That's the primary emphasis. I think today, 
our primary focus tends to be on the cross. We, we spend much more time talking about how Jesus died to pay for our sins. And all of this is incredibly valid, by the way. This is incredibly important that we understand this. That Jesus was this perfect Lamb of God who became a sacrifice for us. The Bible tells us every one of us is sinful. Our sin separates us from God. We have no hope of making things right on our own. And so God took the initiative, God sends his son, this perfect sacrifice who dies in our place, takes the payment for our sin. That, that is a really, really important part of the gospel to understand, but sometimes we stop there. And it's interesting to me that although they do preach the death of Jesus and the sacrificial death of Jesus in the early church in the book of Acts... More emphasis, go back and, and just read through it, more emphasis is given to the resurrection even than to the cross. And the reason for that is because the resurrection is really what um, the, the, the one aspect that nobody could ignore if it were in fact a reality. I mean, there were people who had come before Jesus who had claimed to be the Messiah. There were people who had you know, been great military deliverers. There are people who perhaps had even performed what people would consider to be miracles on God's behalf. Some of the things that Jesus did, now, of course, nobody lived like Jesus. Don't hear me saying that. But, but what I'm saying is people could look at that and say, oh, well, there are others who have done things like that before. They could discount it. But there is no way you can discount the resurrection. It just, you know, you just can't do it. And so when you have people who physically saw Jesus alive, it says that he appeared to over 500 witnesses. Uh, they had seen him die, and now they had seen him alive. Some of them had had very intimate conversations with him. We talked about that on Easter Sunday, Peter's conversation with Jesus post-resurrection. Some had even put their finger in the, the hole prints in his hand and the, the hole in his side where he had been pierced with the sword. I mean, very, very intimate knowledge of and interaction with the, the risen Christ. It's hard to discount that. And we'll get to that a little bit more here in just a moment. But without the resurrection, first thing I want us to see is that our faith is empty. This is a really important core part of our faith. Here's the second thing. Without the resurrection, Paul and the others would be false witnesses. Did you see what he said about that? It says, if Christ has not been, can been, excuse me, has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. But then he goes on and he says, more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. Paul and the others would be found to be false witnesses. Now, we might hear that and say, is that really a big deal? Let's try to put ourselves into the culture of the time. Jewish culture, Old Testament background. How important was it not to be a false witness? Anybody know off the top of your head what the ninth of the Ten Commandments is? I should have messed with you and said the eighth and see if you would nod your head and act like you knew it was this one, right? It's not. It's the ninth one. And a lot of people, when, when they quote the ninth of the Ten Commandments, they will say, uh, do not lie, right? That's, that's kind of the, Exodus 20, 16 says this, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. 
throughout the book of the law. We see this importance that is placed on not giving false testimony. In the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 19, this is where it starts to get real, y'all. Look at the consequences for someone in a court of law who is deemed to be a false witness. Deuteronomy 19, starting in verse 18, says the judges must make a thorough investigation. And if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against a fellow Israelite, then due to the false witness, as that witness intended to do to the other party, you must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid, and never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Um, do you catch what he's saying here? He's saying if you are testifying against someone else, and by the way, this is all in the context of court of law, the eye for an eye, and all of that is talking about legal types of, of, of situations here. This isn't saying if somebody, you know, pokes your eye out that you turn around and poke theirs right back out. But he is saying that if you are in a court of law, in a legal setting, you bear false testimony against somebody. Let's say that, that, that it's a false testimony of somebody you're saying killed somebody else. And so the, as a result, they could receive the death penalty for that. So the death penalty is on the line and you're testifying saying that this person did it and they deserve to receive the death penalty. What this verse says is, if you are found to be a false witness, you could actually be given the death penalty because you are bearing false testimony against somebody else in a case like that. That's, that's enormous. This is a big deal. And he says, don't show, show any pity. Just, you know, we want people to learn from this so it never happens again. Really, really, really big deal especially in that culture, that somebody not be found to be a false witness. Now, of course, in Paul's case, I'm not telling you that if he were found to be a false witness that he would be put to death, but just it's important for us to have that background and understanding of the culture that he's coming out of that being a false witness was such a huge deal. So Paul risked a lot. He staked a lot on the resurrection. I mean, think about all that that was on the line for him. Here's a guy who was excelling among other Jews and, and was becoming a leader among the Pharisees. And he has this path that he is on. And I mean, it's, it's going in a very upward, positive direction. And, and he has an encounter with Christ. And he believes then that Jesus really is alive because he actually spoke with him. He had this, this, this road to Damascus conversion experience. And so now he, he changes gears and everything is, is based on this claim that Jesus is alive. I mean, Paul had a lot to lose. Christians in general had a lot to lose. Have you ever stopped to think about this? That all it would have taken to squash the Christian movement would have been to produce the dead body of Jesus. And it would have been over. That would have been it. Because all of them are claiming that he is alive. If you can prove that they are false witnesses by providing the dead body of Jesus, by disproving the resurrection, Christianity is done at that point. There's, there's nothing more to it. So there is a lot at stake here that they are, are, are risking because of the resurrection. And you go back to verse 3. This is really interesting. We talked about this a little bit last week. 
But when he says, for I received what I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he goes on and talks about all the people he appeared to. Spends a lot of time on the resurrection here. This in verse 3 is already a statement of faith that when he says what I received, I passed on as of first importance. What he's doing here is he is quoting an early Christian statement of faith that included a strong emphasis on the resurrection of Christ and his appearance to multiple people. Don't ever let anybody convince you that this idea of you know, Christ being raised from the dead was something that Christians added later on after. There is absolutely no evidence for that. In fact, this book itself, this letter, 1 Corinthians, was written around 20 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So that's not much time right there. And then he's quoting something 20 years later that has evidently been around, probably dates all the way back to within a few months of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This was a, a, an accepted kind of a, a creed or a statement of faith among believers. So the belief in the resurrection and the proclaiming of the resurrection has been a core part of the Christian uh, belief system and preaching from the very, very beginning. It's extremely important. And he says that, that if this were not the case, then we would be found to be false witnesses. All right, so let's just... Be honest with one another for a minute. Just, let me just ask an honest question. Do you ever struggle at all believing that the resurrection is, in fact, a reality? That it actually literally happened? Uh, and if the answer to that is yes, I, first of all, I think it's good to be honest about that. It's okay for us to, to say this is you know, where I'm at, where I'm, where I'm wrestling. If you wrestle with that, or maybe if you know somebody who does, let me point out to you what to me is one of the most convincing pieces of evidence that the resurrection really happened, that it's, that it's real. And that is this whole idea of being a false witness. Because if Paul, and let's even go back further than that, let's go back to say Peter, who stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached and talked about how they put Jesus to death and he preached about how Christ is alive again. Um, if Jesus didn't really raise, if he really wasn't raised from the dead, then Peter knew that. Okay? I mean, I've heard some people argue, you know, that they believe the delusion and all this. And I, you guys, you've got 500 people and multiple different witnesses who saw the same thing. So I don't think there's much weight at all in that. Either Peter did see Christ and others did see Christ and he was raised from the dead, or they made it up. And you could maybe make the case that by making this up, it gives new life to their belief system. It would give them something to have power over the people. It could, it could benefit them personally in some way in order for them to come up with a lie like this and to stick to it. Okay? Then my question is this. How in the world do we explain the transformation that took place in the lives of people like Peter? And we saw Peter you know, just a few days before, uh, or a few hours before Jesus' death, but a few days before the resurrection, where he is saying, I don't even know the guy. He's calling down curses upon Jesus. And now, all of a sudden, he's 
has this boldness and he's standing up in front of crowds and he's preaching and he's being arrested and he's being threatened and he's being told don't speak anymore in his name and he basically says judge for yourselves whether it's right to do what's right in God's eyes or yours you're not going to stop me nothing's going to stop me how in the world do you explain a person's transformation like that because if it were a lie he would have known it and I'm telling you there's no way you can can work yourself up like that when you are that level of I'm denying that I even know who Jesus is to now all of a sudden I'm going to stand up and preach that he's alive. The only explanation that makes any sense is that they encountered the risen Christ. And then you get down to, you know, even if they, they did work themselves up, do you really think they're going to die for a lie? Do you think they're going to be willing to give up their lives for something that they knew that wasn't true? Absolutely not. There's the, the evidence is just absolutely overwhelming. As amazing as it is for us to, to wrap our minds around Jesus being raised from the dead, it's, it's a reality. And so they would have been found to be false witnesses. Let's, let's keep reading here quickly. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the death comes through a man. The resurrection of the dead, sorry, comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything has been put under him, it is clear that it does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Here's what he's saying. A couple of times in this passage it says that Christ is the first fruits of all who have died. Now you may be pretty familiar with that concept of first fruits. If not, uh, Proverbs 3 verses 9 and 10 gives us a good explanation. It says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops, and then your barns will be filled to overflowing. And your vats will brim over with new wine. First fruits were uh, the first of the fruits that were grown in a crop. It was to be offered to God. It was to be offered as an expression of worship. It was to be offered as an expression of gratitude for what God had provided. But there's something really significant about first fruits as well. And we see it in this verse because it says, Then your barns will be filled to overflowing. The first fruits were not only a sacrifice given to God. It was also a statement of belief that God would provide the rest of the harvest. And it was God's way of saying, I'm telling you to do this because I'm giving you my promise that I will provide the rest of the harvest. So the first fruits was just a taste of what is to come. It's the beginning of what's happening a lot more. When the Bible says that Jesus was raised from the dead as the first fruit, Christ was the first person to be resurrected from the dead, but he won't be the last. Every single one of his followers and those who have faith in Christ and relationship with him will also be raised from the dead. And he is our first fruits, meaning that we can say, okay, this is the beginning, but now God will bring the rest of the harvest. And that gives incredible hope to us, and it, gives, should, it should encourage us deeply to be reminded that this is what we have coming. That just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we too 
will be raised from the dead as well. We get to get into that more next week. So I'm not going to get too far ahead of myself. But let's just read a few more verses. 29 through 32. It says, Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Here's the last thing I want to leave you with quickly today is this. That the resurrection shows that there is more to life than just this life. Guys, I'm so thankful, as we said a moment ago, because of the resurrection, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have power inside of us. We, we can live this life. We can be victorious. We can be joyful. We can experience all these kinds of things. I'm so grateful for what God does in our lives right now. But I'm even more grateful that that's not all there is. That we have eternal life to look forward to. And maybe that's why he, he says what he does when it says that, that if this is the end, we more than all are to be pitied. What a sad faith we would have if all we had to look forward to was what we can experience in this life. But we don't. Our souls are created to live forever. We'll live forever either in the presence of God in heaven or separated from God in hell. But we will live forever. And the resurrection tells us that we have a choice because of what God has done. Not because of anything we can do, not because we're good enough. It's not by works that, that we're saved, it's through, through grace, by grace that you've been saved through faith. We know all those things, but we have hope. The day is coming when we'll be able to say what Paul says later in this chapter when it says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he has given us the victory through Jesus Christ. That's the victory that we have. That's what we have to look forward to, the, the, the knowledge that this life is not all there is. And that's why in 1 Peter 1.3, he can describe the hope that we have as a living hope. It says that we've been giving birth, been given birth to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. That living hope begins now, but it continues on forever. It's a reminder that there's so much more to this life than what we are able to manufacture ourselves. One last story from a, a book. It was written in 2017 called Homo Deus, which if you know anything about that, you'll figure out kind of where the author's going with that. It's a guy named Yuval Noah Harari. And he was talking about this, he was making this case that in the past, people turned to God or to gods only because they could not control the world in which they lived. So he argued that basically there's no need for God anymore because we can control it. Let, let me just read a little excerpt from me. He says, most people rarely think about it, but in the last few decades, we have managed to rein in famine, plague, and war. Of course, these problems have not been completely solved, but they have been transformed from incomprehensible and uncontrollable forces of nature into manageable challenges. We don't need to pray to any god or saint to rescue us from them. We know quite well what needs to be done in order to prevent famine, plague, and war, and we usually succeed in doing it. Guess what? 
That was written prior to the outbreak of a global pandemic three years later, which was a great reminder to us. We're not in control. We don't have the ability to control everything. But God is in control. As we need to be reminded of that. But, but we also need to be reminded that because of the resurrection, it's a reminder God is victorious. God gives us the victory in this life. But he also promises us that's not all there is. There is so much more for us to look forward to. There is an eternity spending time with God that we have to look forward to. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your promises. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that, Lord Jesus, you're alive today and we can worship you in spirit and in truth. And my prayer is that that's exactly what we do. In your name we pray. Amen.